The following podcast contains language and subject matter that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. I got a call from the mayor's black preacher liaison person. And I was surprised to get the call. Marshall Hatch Sr. is the pastor of New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church on Chicago's west side. He was one of about 25 black preachers called down to City Hall near the end of 2015 for a meeting with Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. I thought it was very unusual because after kind of a brief talk or so, the mayor opened it up. I mean, I never known him to open the floor up and give much of a hoots about what the black pastors thought. It was normally a monologue, not a dialogue that I was accustomed to. The meeting was three days before Thanksgiving. The next day, the city would release a police dash cam video. It showed white Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke shooting black teenager Laquan McDonald 16 times. They were very concerned about rioting. The message to the preachers was, you know, if you all don't help me to keep a lid on all of this, don't come downtown asking me for anything anymore if things go up in smoke. Hatch says during the meeting, it came out that McDonald had been in foster care, taken from his mom as a toddler by Illinois' Child Welfare Agency. I mean, that's when I knew we had moved into a real spiritual realm with this piece. I, I, honestly, that. And as a pastor, you know, to me, that's divine poetry. Because he was a throwaway person if there ever was one. That would have to be the one that God would have to put in the center, the name that somebody else thinks is worth throwing away. And it was pretty explosive after that. As uh, ministers kind of said, you know, look, we're not making any guarantees. It's not our job to, to go and tamp down a situation that you guys have created. That situation was generations in the making, rooted in deep divisions between different parts of Chicago. And when the video of McDonald's killing was released, those divisions, at least for a moment, they could no longer be ignored. They want me to go out here and rob somebody. They want me to go out here and sell drugs so I can eat. No citizen is a second-class citizen in the city of Chicago. There's just a very intense anti-police movement in this city. I have absolutely no doubt that this video will tear at the hearts of all Chicagoans. The moment the tape drops, we're taking the streets. Maybe some people, this was the first time that they saw death. That's going to change everything. When the video was released, Chicago would erupt in protest. Mayor Emanuel would be forced to make changes and concessions he never wanted. Laquan McDonald's death was totally avoidable. The U.S. Justice Department would come in to investigate the police department top to bottom. If for nothing else, I want to say thank you, DOJ. Because now we can say, I told you so. Chicago would suffer a historic spike in gun violence. While we're quote-unquote reforming, people are dying. (laughs) People are dying. Are you guys getting that? And for the first time in more than 30 years, a Chicago police officer would be charged with murder for an on-duty shooting. We forced 
the system to do something that they didn't want to do. You know what I'm saying? And that was to provide us transparency and stop hiding what you do to us. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, I'm Jen White, and this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. In this podcast, we tell the story of how this police shooting aggravated long-standing tensions between Chicago police and the city's black citizens. Our team of reporters will look at how a city with a troubled police department spun a narrative of the shooting, how that narrative unraveled, and how the city reacted when it did. And we'll examine the lives of the two people at the center of this story, 17-year-old Laquan McDonald and Jason Van Dyke, a veteran of the Chicago Police Department for more than a decade. We'll speak with people who knew them both, and we'll hear from Officer Van Dyke himself. Van Dyke is scheduled to go on trial September 5th, almost four years after the shooting. We'll be covering each day of the trial and what happens afterwards. But first, we start at the beginning. 815 Robert. On the southwest side of Chicago, on October 20th, 2014, there was a call of a person breaking into trucks in a mostly uninhabited industrial part of the city. A male who we caught breaking into trucks and stealing radios, he's holding them. It's about 9.45 at night. Patrol car 815R, or 815 Robert, responds. When they get there, McDonald has left on foot. The officers follow him. They pass commercial buildings, parking lots, and vacant land. Five minutes after the original call, the officers radio in. Officers radio for someone to bring a taser. They say McDonald is walking away from them with a knife in his hand. They follow him without incident for a few more minutes until McDonald stabs the tire of their squad car with his knife. The officers radio in that he popped their tire. Anybody close? Then Officer Jason Van Dyke's car radios in. Multiple squad cars surround McDonald as he jogs down the middle of a major road. One follows him from behind. It's this car's dash cam that will capture the killing. 45 Robert, 10 cam. Let me know when he's in custody, guys. The dash cam video shows McDonald, wearing a black hoodie and blue jeans, slow down as he approaches a police car stopped in the middle of the street with its lights flashing. McDonald hops a bit and pulls up his pants, and then veers to the right, away from the car. The scene is bathed in flashing blue lights. McDonald's hands are at his side, one holding a folding knife with a three-inch blade. Van Dyke gets to the scene about 10 minutes after the original call of someone breaking into cars. He gets out of his vehicle, and within six seconds, Van Dyke starts shooting. He is the only officer on the scene to fire his weapon. Van Dyke keeps firing after McDonald falls, one shot after another. Puffs of smoke or debris are visible coming off of McDonald. His body twitches and lurches as he takes shot after shot. When the shooting is done, an officer comes and kicks the knife out of McDonald's hand. McDonald dies in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. 
Watching the video of the incident, a former Chicago police union president said it could have been any officer, it could have been any kid. And in many ways, this officer and this kid have become stand-ins for any officer, for any kid. Their story has become a symbol, an allegory. But at the center of it are two actual people. Jason Van Dyke, a white officer with the Chicago Police Department for over a decade, and Laquan McDonald, a black teen who turned 17 just a few weeks earlier. More on them and what that night has meant for the people close to them after the break. In the morning rush or the end-of-day hustle, find the news on the WBEZ mobile app. Catch up and stay informed on your schedule from wherever you are. Available now for Android or iOS. After the video of the shooting was released, Laquan McDonald's great-uncle, Marvin Hunter, gathered the media to make a statement. I want to say that Laquan comes from a family, and that's why I mentioned that, because I heard people that didn't know him say that he didn't have a family, he was in the system, Hmm. and I don't have time to go through that whole process of explaining what that was about, but he had family, and he has family, and that's why we're here today to let you know that he has family. Laquan was a, he was a big, big boy, but he was a teddy bear. He was the kind of kid, when he saw you, he greeted you with a hug. He tried to make you laugh. He was a jokester. A jokester. Everyone who knew Laquan McDonald that we talked to said this. He was funny. He was charming. And he liked to dance. So all of our kids get searched in the morning. And part of the search is that they have to remove their shoes. And Laquan, instead of just taking them off, he started dancing. Sherilyn Thomas works at UCAN Academy. It's an alternative school that Laquan attended. And everyone was trying to be serious, but he was just making a big joke out of it. And uh, it was really, really funny. He was that kind of kid who used to try to diffuse situations with humor. Thomas is limited in what she can say about Laquan McDonald for privacy reasons. All the teachers and mentors we talked to were. And besides a few statements from his great uncle, Laquan's family has said very little to the media. In fact, his mom hasn't given a single interview. So frankly, it's really hard to describe him in much more detail. Most of what we do know comes from court and family welfare records. Court staff note they are impressed with him. He's described multiple times as resilient. But the records also show a teen who struggled and was struggling. We know his mom was in foster care and gave birth to him at age 15. We know Laquan McDonald was also in foster care. By age 17, he had been in at least eight different homes, mostly with relatives. He had drug arrests on his record, and in the three years prior to his death, he'd been in juvenile detention approximately 17 times. Sherilyn Thomas, the woman who worked with him at the alternative school, says describing him through his records raises all these stereotypes. Yeah, you know, they a lot of times the narrative is that youth and care are somehow thrown away and forgotten about, and that's not always the case. And this was not the case for him. Beyond his family, Thomas says he was popular, had a lot of friends. So with his family still being quiet, two of our reporters, Patrick Smith and Shannon Heffernan, went to Austin, that's a Chicago neighborhood on the west side, where he spent a lot of time to find out about him and the hole he left behind. 
Uh, my name's Patrick, I'm from WBEZ, and uh, this is Shannon, we're with the radio station. We've been here before, actually, because um, we heard that, you guys know who Laquan McDonald is? He was a young boy. Yeah. yeah, he was young. Walking around the blocks where McDonald lived, it seems like everyone had met him, or at least remembered seeing him. When you go to the store, you'll see him hanging out in the store, and, and he hangs around his, uh, you know, bunch of teenagers. People told us he spent a lot of time at one particular spot. At the corner store on um, Augusta and Laverne. A bright yellow convenience store named Noah Foots. Inside, in front of a rack of pre-packaged muffins, people sat on stools, chatting. Do you remember when you heard that uh, Laquan got, got killed by police? I heard it on the news. When I seen it on the news, that was sad. Was that the first person you knew of who got killed by police? No, it was like the fourth person. By police? Yeah. 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 I seen the guy across the street and the police is riding past real fast and ran them over. One day, some of the people hanging around the store pointed out Christian Poole and said, that's the guy you need to talk to. Poole and another guy named Aaron Wilson hung out with Laquan almost every day. They said they were close, slept at each other's houses. So a few days later, we met up with the two of them on a porch just a few blocks away. Corn Dog, that was his nickname, Corn Dog. It, it was actually Quan Dog. But we, we in the ghetto, so we, we just make everybody nicknames a porn dog, you know what I'm saying? What was your, what was your first impression of him? He funny, funny, really? funny guy, yeah, yeah he always, <laughs> every, he joke a lot. You know? He used to always joke a lot, yeah. You said you guys would roast each other back and forth, though. Yeah, we did used to have, like, little roasting <laughs> sessions, but, like, you know, we used like, to... What's the best thing he ever landed on you? The funniest the thing? The funniest thing he ever landed on me? He'd be talking about my head and shit, my peanut head. Yeah. What was the best? Uh, what was the best thing you got on him? His walk. <laughs> yeah, he always used to walk some type of way. He's, I can show you what his walk was like. He just always had this fast little walk. Yeah, you know a little fast little walk. Like, like a, you know what I'm saying? Like a. Uh, yeah, you know like saying? he he on the mission. He always on right. He, yeah. But yeah, he he always gonna be remembered though. I got a I got a tattoo for him too, right here on my bicep. I got this right here for him, a little dog print. So dog, because he was corn dog? That's why it's a dog. Yeah. yeah. The night before Laquan got shot, Poole and Wilson were hanging out with him, like they always did, partying, joking around. They say he was supposed to spend the night at Wilson's place, but then Laquan went home to pick up a change of clothes. That was the last time they saw him. I was in school that morning, you know, coming out of the gym room. One of my friends from school... My nickname, A-Town. He like, A-Town, you know your boy just died, right? I'm like, what? I'm like, stop playing, bro. Nah, for real, bro. I had teared up right then and there, you know? Laquan wasn't the first person Poole and Wilson knew who was killed by police. One of their friends had allegedly stolen a bottle of liquor and was leaving the store when police tased him. As he fell, he hit his head and later died. Another was run over by an unmarked police car. It was the death that the guy at the convenience store had mentioned to us. At first, they thought Laquan's story would play out like those did. A new story here or there, but mostly slip under the public's radar. And for a long time, that's what happened. Their pain and anger of losing Laquan was private, just their own. But then the video came out. My best friend Paris showed me on his phone. Did you immediately know you wanted to watch it? Or did you think maybe I should? Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to see everything, like... DNIC, Corndog, he walking down the street, just, you know what I'm saying, got his, like his little regular little walk, hands outside his pants. That walk he made fun of. Yeah, the walk we, we always talk about him. Yeah, that was his walk, though. <laughs> that was my boy, though. That moment where you see him on the street and you, you recognize that walk he did, and then suddenly, he, you know, he goes down. 
Like, what the fuck, like, could go through your head? Like, like what let, made him do let that? Let that many shots go. He wasn't going to stab times? that man. He wasn't going to hurt that man. He wasn't going to hurt that man. No, he wasn't. I really didn't see his face because, like, he was walking away from the police, you know what I'm saying? And then I just seen his body dangle and him fall, you know what I'm saying? And you let all them hot shells go off in, in some little 17-year-old, man, like, sink the smoke coming out of corn dog body, man, like. I still cry about it. Do you watch the video again? No, I don't. Know? I don't want to see it no more. I ain't watched the video. And then, like, every time I turn on the news and they talk about them, like, all right, y'all don't have to keep steady showing that shit. That shit be bringing memories and memories and memories. The memory of him getting killed, that shit still. They just took a look, took a young man out his glow like that. Like, that shows that they don't give a fuck about us. As we were talking, a police car drove by. I just seen the police looking dead at us. <laughs> yeah, like his nosy ass. Window down. They always uh, uh, nod their head like, what's up, what's up? I don't have shit to say to y'all. Y'all done kill so many of my people. And then they always got a smile on their face when they see a motherfucker. And like that shit, you know how that shit make a nigga feel like me? Poole says all the death and trauma he's seen has really taken a toll on him. I asked these guys if they ever talked to Laquan about stuff like that or if Laquan ever talked to them about his struggles. From court records, we know Laquan's great-grandmother had recently died, and he was taking it hard. We know as a child he survived abuse. He'd been in a psychiatric hospital and diagnosed with PTSD. They said they knew all this stuff was going on, but didn't like to talk about it. When we always was around Laquan, it was always laughter and partying. Like, we don't like to talk about this shit on a regular basis. We like to talk about our old our days old, Like, up. our memories. Like, remember we used to ride bikes to the old park and, like, have fun? Like, that's what we talk about when we together. We don't like to talk about our misery and, like, that shit actually hurt the inside of people. Christian says one way they'd avoid all this is by getting high together. When I get high, that shit take me out of reality. It make me feel like no pain. No pain. In court records, Laquan talks about this. At one point, he says he didn't have the skills to cope, and so he'd use drugs. And we know he had PCP in his system the night he died. Laquan's friends say it's been strange to hear about this person they love on the news all the time, hear about him in famous songs and political speeches. But Paul isn't so sure it's going to add up to any real difference in the world. It's nothing going to change with these police. They can have a body camera on their suits, but in their mind, what is going to change? You can't change what a person thinks. You cannot change that. You say, like, what's in their minds. What do you think is in the police's minds? As far as how they look at us black people? Yeah, why, why do you think they're doing what they're doing? What do you think they're thinking? Because look at what's going on out here. A, a lot of, a, it is a lot of black people out here robbing people. It ain't only black people, it's Hispanics, it's white people, it's, but it's only what the news show is what's happening in the Austin neighborhood, what's happening in the Inglewood neighborhood. Exactly. It's only what the news are showing what's happening in us black people neighborhood. The news that is shows why, a lot of That is shit why that, when I go downtown, people look at me like I'm some bad person because of the skin, the color of my skin. That's why I can't walk down the street. I can't be a happy young man or how I want to be because... 
people that the news only show what us black people do. I talked to some of the mentors who worked with Laquan McDonald. One of them brought up a story that gets to what Poole is talking about here. He says he sat Laquan down and told him that because he was a tall, young black man, people were going to be scared of him. He says McDonald laughed it off. But this adult mentor, who was also a black man, wanted him to take it seriously. He took Laquan downtown and made him watch how people on the street reacted to them. He told Laquan, whether or not it's fair, you look like a threat to these people, and that will put you in danger. Whether or not Laquan could reasonably be perceived as a threat when he walked down the middle of the street with a knife on the night he was shot will be a central question at trial. Jason Van Dyke's attorney has been pushing for the trial to include information about Laquan's past, including his drug use and some violent behavior in juvenile detention. This infuriated the mentor I talked to because he says none of that really matters. And besides, Jason Van Dyke didn't know any of that when he shot him. He said if the trial's going to get into Laquan's past, you have to get into all of it. His trauma, how the city and state failed to help him, and how he had family, a sister he was fiercely protective of, a mom who was trying to get custody back. And he had friends, like Poole and Wilson. He was loved. My favorite memory of him was uh, doing the Bobby Schmurda dance. Yeah, his dance, his dance, his hot nigga dance. <laughs> he always used to hit that dance. It's a, show him, just show him what it it's is. A, it's the dance he used to do. He, he, used, to, he used to do that. Whoa. <laughs> he used to do this legs like this. It was like a little hot, I'm so hot, hot nigga. Have his little dread swinging. Swing. He turned us all. It was the yeah, Bobby Smurda always, dance. Yeah, he always used to like to dance. He always used to goof around, dancing. But, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, like, man, you know. It, was, it, it just happened so fast, though. Like, his death and all that, but. He always joked a lot, you know what I'm saying? It's just it's just crazy though just thinking about it though like man, I wish he was still here though. Yeah, I do too. Coming up, we hear directly from the other person at the center of this story. My name is Jason Van Dyke. Uh, Star number is 9465 with Chicago Police Department. That's next, after the break. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth, and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism. And support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16shots for a special subscription offer, just for listeners of this podcast. I'm just going to get a couple over easy with um, ham. Dean Angelo was president of the union that represents rank-and-file Chicago cops when Officer Jason Van Dyke shot Laquan McDonald. We met up with him at Ellie's, a diner in a part of town where a lot of cops live. There's no way that people should think that Officer Van Dyke wakes up in the morning looking for an opportunity to shoot an African-American kid in our, in our city. Angelo says when he watches the video, 
He sees it differently than someone who has never policed. We've watched a 30-second silent movie, and, and I still don't think everyone has the full picture. When he watches, he sees officers on the scene making tactical errors, like the angle they stop their cars. And he sees Van Dyke arriving to a hard situation. You know, it's like the perfect storm. There are no tasers. The kid doesn't give up after being requested for like 20 minutes. There's a lot more to that video than what we see. Angelo didn't know Van Dyke before the shooting. But after the police department suspended Van Dyke without pay, the union tried to help him find a job. Angelo says they do that for many officers in trouble, and usually they can find them something, like loading trucks. But Van Dyke was so infamous, the union couldn't find him anything. He couldn't even get a job at a mom-and-pop grocery place because they feared customers would not come to their store anymore if they knew he was doing the stock. So they hired him at the Union Hall to do cleanup. I would get up at 5 in the morning every day um, to beat traffic, and he'd be at the building every day before me. You know, you walk in, and in and he's vacuuming, you know, the foyer. People see him as a monster. Um, I see him as a good kid, you know, that got caught up in his, in his situation that, like I said, could have been anybody. Well, Jason Van Dyke and the people close to him have been quiet since the video first came out. Besides a few words in court, we've heard nothing from Van Dyke, but he recently granted his first interview to Chicago Tribune reporter Christy Gutowski. And Christy, you've been building a relationship with this family for a while now, and it started when you first interviewed his wife, Tiffany, about two years ago. Tell me about where they live. They live on the city's southwest side, very modest ranch home, um, older neighborhood. They live there with their two daughters. She told me that the drapes were always open in their front room, and their house was the place where everybody gathered, all the kids. But ever since the charges, obviously, things had changed quite a bit. And she talked about how they always kept the drapes drawn on the front window, and their house was no longer like the hangout where the kids' friends would come and gather. Did she describe any changes to his personality over the years? His wife described him as an introvert, and she was an extrovert, so it's sort of their yin-yang thing. And she remembered the day that he graduated police academy and the optimism that he felt about wanting to do good as the years went on. And and he worked midnights and late nights on the streets in some of the worst neighborhoods of the city. She said he got even more introverted, and she said that it definitely changed him. So the interview with Tiffany Van Dyke was two years ago. But then the day before we were set to release this podcast, Jason Van Dyke agreed to sit down with you. But there were some pretty tight restrictions on this interview. Lay out what you were walking into. As you know, Jen, it's pretty difficult to get somebody about to stand trial for first-degree murder in this big of a heater case to talk. So we had been in negotiations, and eventually they said yes, but there were many restrictions. We were asked to give a list of questions beforehand and got them back with the defense attorneys drawing a line across certain ones. They didn't want him talking about the shooting itself. They didn't want him talking about the aftermath, the fallout, the politics, the other police officers being charged with this conspiracy to cover up the shooting. With the restrictions, how much skepticism were you walking into this interview with? 
I knew that it was going to be carefully choreographed by the defense. There were two lawyers present and a media strategist was there as well. The interview was limited as far as scope, but he did tell me about his time as a police officer before the shooting. I loved my job. It was great. What was great about it? You get to see people at their best. You get to see people at their worst. You get to um, you get a sense of accomplishment. Um, a job, if you like interacting with people, it's fantastic. Do you think you were a good police officer? Yeah, I think I was a great police officer. Why? You know, I always made efforts to treat everybody fairly and with respect and the way I wanted my own family to be treated. You know, I've had many encounters with people with guns, you know, other use of force situations. Um, I've always been able to de-escalate the situation, defuse the situation, never had to shoot anybody. I've been proud of that, that I've never had to shoot anybody. So I want to jump in here, Christy. He says he never shot anybody before Laquan McDonald, but you've also looked at his personnel records. And, and what do you learn about his time as an officer from those records? He did have some citizen complaints, at least 20. He was never disciplined for any of those. And at least two of those complaints from our reporting, we found that he was accused of using a racial slur, and at least half of them alleged excessive force. There was one lawsuit in particular where the jury awarded $350,000 because he had handcuffed a black man so violently that the man required medical intervention. What did Jason Van Dyke have to say about those complaints and lawsuits? At the advice of his attorney, he would not answer any questions about the lawsuits or the uh, citizen complaints. I want to jump back a bit to the interview you did with his wife. Did she remember the night of the shooting? You know, he was working nights and she woke up the next morning and he still wasn't home. So she got the kids ready for school. She got them off to school and she called him and said, where are you? He answered and said, I'm working overtime, can't talk. And that was it. She wasn't worried when he didn't come home because they had kind of a rule between them that unless a uniformed police officer arrives at the home and knocks, I'm okay. So when he came home the next day, she was there. And before he even spoke, she could see on his face that something was very wrong. He was very upset, very shaken, very closed off to her, even though she described him as uh, not a big talker in the past. This was much more so. And she told him that there was a shooting and that someone died and um, that there'll be an investigation. And she said she asked him a question, did you do your job? And he said, yes. And she said, did you do it to the best of your ability? And he said, yes. And she said, that's all I need to know. Jason Van Dyke's lawyer wouldn't let him talk about the shooting, but did he say anything about that night at all? He did. He talked about, uh, when I asked him, what is one of your darkest moments? Obviously, my darkest day was the night of the shooting. Um, you know, it was, um, just overwhelming amounts of everything at once, emotions, um, adrenaline, you know, I don't get too much about. So we hear a voice there saying, don't get too much into that. Who is that speaking? That's his lead defense attorney, Daniel Herbert. He said, don't get into anything pre-shooting. Don't get into anything pre-shooting. You know, I 
remember coming home and uh you know just going into the shower and just sitting down in the shower and until the water went cold and even then I didn't get out So uh, how are you, I mean, you're on the eve of your trial. You might be really looking forward to it, tell your story, or you might be a nervous wreck. How, where's your mind at these days? You know, of course, I'm uh, extremely nervous. Um, I might be looking at the possibility of spending the rest of my life um, in prison for, you know, doing my job as I was trained as a Chicago police officer. Do you think you'll ever be a police officer again? No. If, why not? Would you want to? I don't think I'll have the opportunity to ever serve in law enforcement or in any capacity in the public again. Would you want to? No, I, I wouldn't be able to. Um, I'd be too much of a liability. Is there anything you want to say to the McDonald family, if appropriate? You know, I... I pray every day. Um, I offer up a rosary every day. Did you get a chance to hear from Laquan McDonald's family um, what what they had to say about Jason Van Dyke's prayers and condolences? A great uncle, the Reverend Marvin Hunter, he has said that he doesn't have any sympathy for Jason Van Dyke, who he said acted as the judge, jury, and executioner of his young nephew. Did he say anything about how he feels about Van Dyke talking to the media? Obviously, this was an orchestrated interview, and he felt that the timing of it was very suspect with jury selection likely starting. What questions did you walk away with? Sometimes having these conversations, you leave with more questions than you than you started off with. I was left wondering why. How did we get to this? How did he become this police officer who within seconds of arriving on a scene unload his gun until there was no bullets left? What happened to him in the years that he was working? So how do you go from that idealistic young cop that wants to save the world to to what we saw in that video? Jason Van Dyke was the only officer to fire his gun at Laquan McDonald the night of October 20th, 2014. But in the aftermath, there was a machine that would kick into gear. A machine that involved other officers, union reps, and city officials. A machine that's operated successfully in Chicago for decades. Next time on 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I mean, I think of the autopsy as being as close as we'll ever get to having Laquan McDonald testify to what happened to him. Police and city officials create a narrative of the shooting. He is a very serious threat to the officers, and he leaves them no choice at that point but to defend themselves. The civilian witnesses tell a different story. You didn't need that many cops to begin with, and second of all, you didn't need to sh- they didn't need to shoot them. They didn't. And the official narrative starts to unravel. Someone within law enforcement, with inside information, decided to say, hey, this isn't right. There's a cover-up. (laughs) 
16 Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. It was produced by James Edwards with assistance from Joe Dassault. Our reporting team includes Shannon Heffernan, Chip Mitchell, and Patrick Smith. Mike Lansu is our digital editor with help from Paula Friedrich. Our senior editor is Rob Wildeboer. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer, and Steve Edwards is WBEZ's chief content officer. Special thanks to the Chicago Tribune's Christy Gutowski, editors Matt O'Connor, Tracy Van Morlehem, and Angela Rosa O'Toole. And thanks to the WBEZ Newsroom, whose reporting was instrumental to this series. Additional thanks to Colin McNulty, Sophie Lalonde, and Stefania Gomez. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org slash 16shots. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth, and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.